Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live, where we're exploring today's digital revolution with the added mix of the impact of the global pandemic that we've all been wrestling with over the last 10 weeks or so. Our guest today is Tony Uphoff, who's one of our monthly digital all-stars. It's Uphoff on industry time today. Tony's the CEO of Thomas, which is the parent of ThomasNet, the company that's undergone its own digital transformation from a media company to now a data platform connecting buyers and sellers in an industrial and manufacturing markets. And Tony's really got his hands on what's going on with buyers and sellers in a wide range of industries around the world. Tony, welcome back. Always a pleasure to have you here at Cloud Wars Live. Hey, Bob. Great to see you. Thanks. So, Tony, this uh, uh, is it a roller coaster we've been on over the last, uh, you know, three months or so? I know it's uh, it has had some, it certainly had some downs. I think we're starting to see some ups, but uh, right now I think things are, you know, we're all getting our feet back on the ground a little bit. How's it look to you? Boy, it's interesting listening to you say we're going into the 10th week, right? Depending on, you know, exactly where everybody started with this process. We're going on our 10th week of, of the pivot to remote work for, for Thomas. And we just had our third board meeting, uh, all virtual, that, that we've had since the, uh, the launch of this. And it's everybody from the board on through the company has been remarking at um, how productive, and in many cases, even a slight increase in, in productivity. And so I think our company, like so many others, Bob, is, is you know, um, discovering some things. And I think the emotional roller coasters, right, of the original white knuckle, holy smokes, I hope we can do this. And then the, boy, is, this is going to impact my business. And then, well, gee, maybe I can pivot and do some things and be agile. Um, it feels, and I, I want to be cautiously optimistic here, but it feels to, to me like those roller coasters are getting less high and low, right? It, it, I wouldn't say we've evened out yet. I don't think we're quite there. But I think those those wild swings, Bob, that people were feeling in the first few weeks of this, where you, you and me and others were having rational conversations about entire segments of industries going away overnight or other things happening, and there have been some some very clear areas of devastation. But um, I, I think we're starting to the roller coaster is getting a little um, a little less wild. The ride's getting a little less wild. Let me say that. Now, Tony, I'm glad to hear it. I'm getting a similar feeling. Some of our other guests here on Cloud Wars Live have expressed that similar intent. There's lots and lots and lots more work to be done, a lot to think about. You can think of 33 million Americans out of work and tens of millions more around the globe as a result of this. But as you said, Tony, there's, uh, there's a, a rebirth occurring here, a reimagining and the creation of new opportunities coming forward. And you had some pretty intriguing ideas about that. So tell us about what, uh, what you're thinking there of how this, it's not just like at some point, June 15th, everything will look like it did on February 15th. It's going to be a dazzlingly different world. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, 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 one of the, you know, one of the ways we're trying to do this, Bob, is to understand not only the trajectory, what's accelerating, what's changing about our own business, how do we prepare ourselves to, to thrive through this, but also be in better shape when we come out of it. But we're also listening to our customers. And, you know, we, we, we serve a two-sided marketplace, users who are buyers, procurement professionals and engineers, and then suppliers who range from custom manufacturers through to product OEMs. And I'll tell you, one area that we've found really interesting is we have a tremendous number of suppliers who have come to us and said, 
hey, you know, we, we exhibited at least one trade show a year. Guess what? It's gone away. And so we need to put those dollars to work. And the, the core value of a trade show is really between connecting buyer and seller and meeting prospects and spending time with customers. So, you know, we, we've been able to, to help some of those customers understand we don't uh, replicate events. We actually provide a different type of platform experience that we would argue is, is always on and not episodic. But as we did so, one of the things that we started to really think about is, will this be the final last step, Bob, that redefines events and the event industry? And you and I have talked about this before. You, you could make the argument that live events are the oldest form of business-to-business -business marketing. Right, you know, we we gathered around fire, and threw rocks, and you know, did things together, and in in vert in meetings, right? As and as that has evolved, it's also particularly over the last twenty years, probably been the most stable part of business marketing. It it has growth years, but it doesn't really ever go down in any you know significant way. And along comes this black swan moment that has devastated the industry for this year. I think the jury's still out what's going to happen in subsequent years. I could argue too, as somebody who has run many of the major events in tech markets, and you've been involved in those businesses too, I'll be self-critical, not critical of anybody who's in that business. They are probably some of the least innovative formats in the history of media. They really haven't fundamentally changed where you rent a huge you know, hall, you make it very confusing for people to walk around, you sell 20 by 20 booths, and you have people inside those booths that yell at passers-by in the hopes that they might be interested in the product or service that they're showcasing in said booth. The ROI metrics are really non-existent, but yet this is this cultural thing that we've had for years and years and years and years. I think events could be more. And I think this may be, I hope it is, the opportunity that, you know, uh, that, that, that perhaps I want to try to stay away from the term hybrid, uh, you know, uh, models, Bob, because I think that makes it feel like it's transitory. It's not a long term. But I think event producers have been loath to really invest in um, digital transformation that might accentuate the user experience pre, during, and post, but also accentuate other things, perhaps for the supplier or the exhibitor. Give you a real simple example. Um, the idea of how to exchange information at a trade show hasn't advanced beyond going to your local pub and dropping your business card in the fishbowl with the idea that you get a free beer next time you come by. It literally has not advanced at all. And, and don't listen to the nonsense. Oh, we have RFID tagging and it's the exact same thing. And there is just so much more I think we can do to serve users and audiences and extend these experiences and, and create some really fascinating things. And so I'm hoping what comes from this, and I'm predicting that, and unfortunately some of the smaller events aren't gonna come back. They won't be able to survive this. I think some of the larger, smarter um, event companies, I think they're already thinking and planning for some of this type of stuff. And this will be the accelerant that'll move them over the edge. And if I compare it to my own industry that we serve, this idea of industry 4.0, Bob, which was, you know, digital sat over here and industrial sat over here and they started to kind of, and then the next thing you know, they're sort of intertwined now. And, and in a lot of cases, it's so inextricably intertwined, it's very difficult to pull, well, what's the digital component of that? 
and what's the physical component. I, I think this may be that moment that the event business um, get, gets pushed, pulled <laughs> into, into that next stage. Yeah, Tony, uh, by the way, what was the name of that bar with the fishbowl? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm pretty certain you were the guy that took me there. Oh, uh, no. I, so, uh, but I digress, of course. It must have been meeting customers. I, I, I'm sure absolutely, that was Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Tony, I, you know, the, we, we've seen this for a while and you could, you know, recall some companies, you know, not long ago, like saying digital, holy heck, I can't get into that. That will cannibalize and so on. And there, there's this mindset of like your business mission is to do what you did yesterday you know, we're starting to, uh, those companies are just going to have a brutal time of it. But the other way around is seeing, can I do a better job for the customers, especially if the customers are choosing to go more and more in that digital direction? Um, I think some uh, statistics, I think it was a survey in Fortune that talked to, asked surveys about, so in this climate of the pandemic and everything, what, what has happened to your digital transformation initiatives? I think it was 6% said we're slowing down and 94% said we're on target or we're accelerating. And again, I, I'm like you, I'm not, not trying to be mean or pick at people, but I want to sit down with that 6% and ask them, you know, how, how'd you, how'd you get to this idea to just back off? You know, what, what's, what's yeah. happening there? So what a, what a time though. And as you described these things of events, which, paradoxically is that notion, well, you know, that's the face-to-face -face thing. But as you described it, they can be some of the most impersonal and, you know, inauthentic interactions that we go through. So that blend of some of the things that are good about face-to-face -face with some of the really wild innovations that are coming on the digital event side, that could be real powerful. Bob, I think, and, and what you just said just triggered the thought in my mind. I think this is one of those moments very much like, um, the, the um, locomotive industry thinking they're in the train business and they missed the broader aspects of they're actually in the transportation business. You know, you and I have a lot of friends that are still in the event side of the business and they think of themselves as in the event business. And technically that is a very accurate way of how the business model works and how they make money. But I think it's a very limiting construct in today's world when you actually realize what it is that they do and what it could be and where it could go. And, and I, I will also tell you, the challenge for many of these event companies is the, the, the companies that are gonna shift dollars now into digital are gonna see the scale and the efficiency of digital. You know, with digital, you don't deal with the labor union. You don't have to pay a team to set up a booth. Nobody needs a break. Nobody needs to fly there. Nobody needs to overspend on T&E. Nobody gets too drunk the night before and fails to show up for the customer meeting, right? I mean, I think, you know, you may find that the scrutiny of what people thought was ROI of investing in a trade show is now going to be illuminated under a different light. And I, again, I, I don't think that is a negative necessarily for the event business. I think for weak events, it will be. But I think it actually will strengthen the event industry by you know, there's, let's, let's call it this convergence, if I can use that term, Bob, between what we think of as digital things and, and technologies into the event experiences. And Tony, it, it seems like the connecting point there, the, the fulcrum almost in that, that whole swing over is going to be, you know, around the, the data capabilities that can be brought out of the digital side of things, along with 
you know, some of the traditional parts of an event business, but th there's that larger thing, you know, every conversation we have about where's business headed today and into the next few quarters, the conversation always seems to come back around to the significance of data and how can companies be better prepared to fully exploit that. Yeah. It, it, and, and Bob, it's interesting. I, I shared with you before we went on air today that one of the biggest questions I get asked by people, you know, inside our company, uh, peers of mine who run similar types or size of companies um, in interviews like this, people will say, hey, what are you all working on? You know, what are you focused on right now? And not just your business, but are, are you kind of doing some training or education or programs so that when you come out of this, you learned a new skill or you, 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 you know, you're in better shape than when you went into it, right? Um, and we've been very focused on this idea of data literacy. And this also comes up, we're hearing this a lot from our customers. It, and I wanna see if I can thread the needle here so, so I, I don't make this um, uh, confusing. I'm not, I'm not describing the need for a data scientist and a data science team. I think that's really important. I'm not even really describing the need for data analytics, technology, or programs. I think most companies are adapting that at a greater or lesser you know, uh, pace of acceleration. What I'm really noting is I think the need for basic data literacy has gone up. So if you think back a decade ago, Bob, when we were as hiring managers, you know, I kind of blinked, but I realized, boy, the average person that we're hiring is a step change up in terms of technical literacy than the generation before them, right? The average person knows how to, you know, they can do uh, SQL queries, they can build a website, they can do a little simple programming, they can do all these other things that to my generation, that felt like magic, right? And, and so I think what's happening now is what companies need, certainly our companies need, I, I don't need data scientists, although we have those folks, I don't need more of those. What I now need is a little bit of what the data scientist understands for everybody so that they can spot patterns in the data, they can see things in the data, they can self-actualize around the data. And I, I may be painting sort of an aspirational picture here, but, but I really think this is a trend because I hear this a lot and it's not always expressed, Bob, as data literacy. You know, people will say, God, Tony, I wish I had somebody that could look at our sales trends and give me the up, down, or sideways about it, right? You know, in the internet industry, there's a lot of discussion around, hey, we need um, revenue operations. And I'll say, well, what's revenue operations? Well, it's somebody that can look at the margins of each deal, and see the trend, and see which ad products are moving quicker than others, look at click-through rates, look at Google Analytics, and really help us steer the business. What they're describing is data literacy. That's really what they're saying. And we express this in technical terms. Oh, do you know how to do this versus that? I think what's starting to emerge, Bob, is, a, is, a, um, is, is something that's more holistic, if that makes sense. And, and frankly, something that's, that we should all be developing. Tony, you know, that, that reminds me of a, a story that uh, Thomas Curian, the CEO of Google Cloud, told me uh, about six months ago, he said, uh, you know, his company had to come up the learning curve in a similar sort of way. He said, when we were dealing with customers, we'd say to them, uh, they describe the new processes that were happening, the new buying habits of customers, either businesses or consumers, the new operational uh, 
requirements that were being put in place because of that. And uh, Thomas said, we'd say to them, well, what you need to do is go out and hire, you know, 85, 125, 150 data scientists, and then have boom, 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 boom. And then, you know, he said, we realize that that's, that's beyond the capability of, of many companies or even, you know, where do you get started? Where do you find the first five, let alone the first hundred? But that sense of data literacy, I think, is what's underlying that. More people having to understand how to do this, how to come into it better, how to think about things in terms of, you know, I, I, I'm not uninterested in your opinion, but what I really want is what's the data-driven insight that you can bring to this. Yeah, Bob, I'm remembering the, the, the fantastic movie Airplane, where as the guys that are in the tower are trying to figure out what's going on, the guy walks up and says, what do you make of this? And it's a data printout. And he goes, well, it could be a hat. It could be a pterodactyl. It could be a brooch. And, and it, I always think of that vignette when we're laboring over, hey, we've got all these data points. And frankly, companies like ours are, are awash in data. You know, we're literally in petabytes of data. But I think we're all yearning for, and, and it's not just a simple platform. The best data analytics package is still not going to give you the answer. It's yeah, going to and, and potentially spot the answer or series of answers. Sorry, Tom. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just thinking that, you know, another, uh, <laughs> well, this shows a little bit about, you know, our perspectives on things. But to go back to that, that uh, highbrow movie, Airplane, I think there's also the line in there, and to me, this indicates a growing distrust these days of titles or uh, certifications that, that people have, because there's been a lot of people with high credentials who've done and said some really bright things. And there's a lot of people over the last three months with very glowing credentials who have said some really dumb things and pointed us in different directions. But I think there's a line in there in the movie when the one guy uh, goes up to the pilot and he says, uh, he says, uh, you know, so what's going on? The guy says, I can't tell you. He says, no, you can tell me I'm a doctor. He says, no, I mean, I don't know. I can't tell you what I don't know. Uh, but the guy, because he's a doctor, you know, well, you know, who can get in on this? Um, Surely you jest. Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> yes. Anyways, don't, don't. <laughs> I got to stop. Or are we going to keep going? No, no. Uh, but Tony, these things of, um, you know, uh, new sorts of events, new sorts of approaches, new, uh, new willingness to not just accept, but to push into new fields. I think the data literacy is going to be one of those things. You get enough people with that right mindset, they're going to be willing to either kick open more doors or to nail some others shut. To just say, this is not the way to do what we've been doing and perhaps a little more of that data literacy in the times of face-to-face -face events might've prevented some people from, you know, leaving that thing with a, a paying a big bill, but having very little ROI from it, except, you know, some of the unfortunate things that you described there. So well, I think, I think Bob, you're also talking about too, and you and I've had this conversation before because we, we bore witness, if I can use that, that uh, phrase um, at the dawning of distributed computing where you know, computing used to be controlled in a separate room by separate people. And boy, if you were lucky enough, you might get access to some of the information that came out of that room. And we actually bore witness to the fact that suddenly information was pushed down mm -hmm. into the hands of people with proximity to where it could have the most benefit. And that's not always a smooth process, by the way. You know, it's a bit of an evolutionary process. But I, I actually think this concept, Bob, that you and I are describing is, is yet another step in this. You know, if, 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 if I have to hire another 10, you know, what was the 85 people that are data science? If I have to go hire people, 
to figure out what the answer is. And then they're responsible for putting that in a format and explaining it to the next set of people who explain it to the next set of people. Man, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be at this a long time before we see much progress. But you know, all kidding aside, I think, I think you're onto something. I really do think this is a trend. And whether we call this data literacy or you know, exactly what the phraseology is, I think this is starting to happen on its own. And I just feel like we're seeing a bit of uh, an acceleration of it. And Tony, that, and that, that willingness and ability to take the hammer to some things that uh, has been business as usual or, well, that's just how we do things. And, you know, I understand there's a lot of, of traditional ways of doing stuff that's really good and should be carried forward. There's some other stuff that we're finding often uh, over the last few months, very painfully that, decisions that were made at some point in the past based on a series of premises that might or might not have been true at that time, but certainly are not valid today, uh, are requiring, you know, massive overhauls in the way we think. So we've seen some of this stuff about, uh, you know, these startling statistics and whether, you know, you tie this to China or any company outside the U.S. that you would allow a situation where 75, 80, 85 percent of critical medications uh, are, are not made in this country. It has led, I think, to a quite helpful rethinking of a lot of this stuff about offshoring, outsourcing and so forth. Given where you sit, you know, with ThomasNet and that uh, staggering range of buyers and sellers that you connect every day. I know you've been thinking about this a lot. So where, where do you think this might be headed? You know, it is a fascinating area of study, Bob, and you and I've had light conversations about this before. The, the term that a lot of people use is called reshoring, and it's exactly what it sounds like, right? So, you know, in this case, we're talking about reshoring to North America manufacturing that had at one point in time been outsourced to another country. <clears throat> that trend in the United States has been on a very steady increase over the last pretty close to a decade, and there's a lot of reasons why. And frankly, very few of them have to do with altruistic reasons. They're really around U.S. manufacturing being very, very competitive on the global stage. And what we have seen through survey instruments that we've done, we've been sampling once a month here over the last three months, uh, over a thousand manufacturers of impacts of COVID. And from the first wave of the study, I think it was around 25% anticipated that if you hadn't been reshoring, they were now going to look at it. That's now up to nearly 65%, Bob. And <clears throat> I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And we'll all 65% certainly do that. The fact of the matter is there's no two ways about it. The pandemic is accelerating this idea of reshoring to North American manufacturing. At the same time, what is to me even more fascinating <clears throat> and, and perhaps without you know, spending too much time going backwards, there's a lot of very smart people that are going back and unpacking the logic that initially drove so much of the outsourcing back in the 1970s. And there's a thesis and I'm not uh, an economist and I'm, I'm not educated enough in the topic to make this, but I'll offer up the thesis. And the thesis is this, that the, the drive for outsourcing really was driven primarily by short-term Wall Street thinking. The second component was consultancies who charged an exorbitant fee to come in and show you how to outsource and then cut out all these fantastic costs. And on paper, it looked spectacular because suddenly margins went up by extraordinary multiples. And if you were a publicly traded company, particularly for those types of businesses back then, you were traded on your profit, not traded on your growth metrics. So it was a healthy thing. 
But then something kind of odd happened, right? People now realize, A, the math was flawed, and B, short-term was very short-term because suddenly now job losses, which means you have skill shortage, which means you have no more innovation and you can't really innovate with those businesses anymore because you've outsourced your ability to innovate. Come, come to now find that, you know, we were asleep at the switch and we didn't realize, hey, wait a minute, isn't manufacturing critical to the safety and protection of our citizens of our country? I mean, don't we manufacture like things to protect the company? And isn't, aren't drugs and PPE, aren't those things that get manufactured? Well, guess what? Yes, they are. And so it's been fascinating to us to watch this initial, you know, uh, acceleration of reshoring. And I don't, I'm not a revisionist historian and I'm not gonna go back and, and litigate things that have already happened, but we've seen this movie before. A lot of the junk bond buyouts in the eighties were just reflections of flawed logic, you know, uh, very simple mathematical calculations and short-term gains that ultimately devastated companies and, and certain industries. And I think, it's fair to say that maybe some of the outsourcing that we saw um, was flawed logic. Um, perhaps we're seeing an acceleration of reshoring. And again, not looking backwards, but maybe there's some learning here, right? It's good for us. Certainly, if you think about it from an American point of view, the idea that we would outsource 85% of the manufacturing capacity for PPE equipment, and by the way, that's not including the outsourcing of antibiotics and other things that are manufactured off the shores of this, this country is terrifying. Now, the average American had no idea about this. I would even argue that some of the companies involved in the supply chain had no idea about what you and I are describing. But now, with clarity of hindsight, you know, we know that. So I, I, I'm, I'm an optimist and I'm bullish about this stuff. I, I think a lot of good is going to come from this. But, but I do think you may very well see books, articles, um, opinion pieces where people are going to go back and stab at some of the folks that, you know, jousted some of the folks if they're still around uh, back in the 70s and 80s that made some of those decisions or at least go after the logic because it, you know, in retrospect, it was horribly flawed, um, you know, both the metrics, but also just the underlying business model logic was just, it turns out it was horribly flawed. Yeah. Yeah. And Tony, I think at, in the specific climate we're in today, uh, and you know, I'm talking about the, with this pandemic thing. So, ten weeks, you know, in broadly, I think uh, the intensity of feelings, the intensity of things we've learned, or the things even if we haven't learned, but we think we've learned, we're starting to learn. And you're talking about a dynamic that's been ongoing for decades here, but this could really be, you know, a crucible through which something wildly different comes out of that. And especially if you think about it in terms of today, when there are somewhere between 30 and 35 million Americans, tens of millions more around the world have been pushed out of their jobs, partly for these sorts of reasons. I think the climate for whether you look at it politically, through the individuals, through the sense of companies and what's going on in that higher level sense of the safety and the rationale for it, uh, I, I believe you are, you're so right on this. It is going to be, I think something, you know, early next year, we're going to look at this and say, sort of like, how did any, how did people survive without ATMs? And then, right? Where'd you get my, and then after ATM, how did you survive? You know, so, but it is going to be one of those things like, what the hell were we thinking? 
Bob, do you remember in technology when there was a stage where cheaper, faster, better kind of, you know, created real challenges in certain markets and this idea of TCO broke out, which was total cost of ownership, which was really a more enlightened way of saying, hey, you know what, this might seem more expensive than this, but when you factor the total cost of ownership for this, you actually need to calculate other factors. Now, some companies misused it and it was just trying to bamboozle people, but there was actually a huge amount of logic to the theory and the idea. I think in a way you and I are describing the same thing. I think, you know, I, I have talked to, and I am not one of these people, I have talked to hardcore supply chain experts who will unpack the math and what they'll walk you through is to say, so let me get this straight. So you're, you're for 50 cents on the dollar, you're manufacturing something in China that you pay 50 cents on the dollar to manufacture than if you, if you based it here. Okay, great. So walk me through, let's suppose that 60% of your revenues come from North America. So you're now paying to manufacture something at 50 cents on the dollar. How much of that 50 cents do you give back? on the picking, packing, shipping, logistics, and then distribution to your North American customer. By the time you're done, how much exactly did you save? I've had many of these supply chain folks, and this is the TCO concept, Bob, that will actually show that it is indeed more expensive in some cases. And that's really my point on the flawed math and flawed logic. You know, and, and again, it, it, it's far more complex than I'm making it sound really simple. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to demonize, demonize folks who got caught up in this back in the day. But I do think it's one of these, and we've seen these moments where these business concepts start to overwhelm things. And it, it takes off in a way that in retrospect, we look back and went, to your point, how the hell did this happen? You know, because it devastated certain regions of the country. You happen to live in one and that they've recovered quite well from it. Um, it, it fundamentally changed the way certain industries operated and worked. And, and, and I could argue at times, and perhaps, you know, we've, we've just barely uh, survived coming through one of these. I think it's made us um, less safe, uh, us as a, as a country, when you consider that, you know, we are still struggling to source many of these critical products and services at a time when that, that should never be, talk about stockpiling for God's sake, that should never be hard for us to be able to do, for any country. I'm not, I'm not just talking about America, for any country to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, Tony, there's, um, there's an, uh, just one anecdote I wanted to share with you. It touches a little bit on you know, a few of the things you've described here. Uh, Bill McDermott, who is the CEO of ServiceNow, had been at SAP for about 10 years, and he spoke at an investor's conference late last week, the JP Morgan Tech and Communications Conference. And um, the person from JP Morgan was asked some questions about the impact of COVID and two things. So one, Bill said that culturally, he said, everybody's got a choice to make. Am I going to be a victim of this? Or am I going to pull our team together and say, no, we're going to come out of this better we're going to come out of this stronger. We're going to be one of the ones that grow. We're going to do things for people that will, you know, connect them to us for life. Uh, so I, I think that that's just such a powerful idea. And you've, you've, you've really hit on that a number of times. The other thing that Bill said was, you know, he left SAP at the end of last year. He took over in January, late January, early February. They had their earnings announcement right after the earnings announcement. Uh, he and some people on the team went on a 16-day tour to see customers all over the world. 
And, you know, he said, we visited customers in either four or five continents. Well, at this investors conference late last week, he said, I visited with customers from four continents this morning. And he said, I talked to the CEOs. And he said, we had no rush about the airport or the flight and this and that and, you know, uh, packing and all that. So he said, hey, international travel is always going to be a part of what we do. But he said, let's think about what we can do if we're willing to open up our minds to reimagine not just the world out there, but what we do, what's our role in it, where do we go, where's the opportunity, and how can we redefine ourselves into this wildly new future? And, I, you know, as always, Tony, you've given us lots to think about that path forward and the mindset necessary to get there. Yeah. And what a great vignette. That's going to stick with me. And, and uh, I'll, I'll look, see if I can find the transcript of it. But it is it is such a, a beautiful example of, of, of the transformative nature, right, of, you know, this, this horrible crisis, but yet, you know, these amazing technologies that we have access to. And I, I, I couldn't agree more, Bob, that we're not going to come out at the end of this the same way we went into it. And, and I think that is good news for many companies. McDermott is a world-class executive, and obviously he's trying to lead his company in that direction. We're sure working hard at Thomas to be able to do that. And we see some evidence that we, we can come through this okay. And then, if anything, perhaps uh, out the other end, a, a stronger uh, company and, and perhaps uh, a, you know, a, a revitalized company, I could even argue, with some respects. Um, but it'll be fascinating to see some of the new things that we see come out of this. And it's fun to turn our attention towards that versus the, the gloom and doom that perhaps the first couple of months of this and not to say that there aren't still some challenging moments ahead of us, but it's, it's, um, it's inspiring to start to think about the path forward. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, if you would be willing to commit here publicly to buy me a beer, I will give you a very easy uh, name of an article where you can find that quote from McDermott and some other good ones, even where he connects service now to the grateful dead. You know, I'm going to just take a wild stab at it because you know I don't like to have to buy you beers if I don't have to. I'm going to guess it's Cloud Wars Live, uh, the website. I'm going to guess. I, I don't know that for sure, but I'm going to guess that's perhaps where I could find that. Pretty close, pretty close, Tony. We'll give you an A for that. But uh, so, okay. okay, so you've committed to buying me the beer. But uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's an article. It's called Bill McDermott Unplugged uh, Service Now CEO Riffs on. Uh, Oracle and SAP Culture and the Grateful Dead. And I just pulled from this transcript, uh, Bill's thoughts about, you know, those things, competitive dynamics. And it's so interesting. And I bring it up and I'm burning some of your airtime here, Tony, to describe it. Because as I said, he really gets into this notion of, you know, you get to that point, you make a choice. What are you going to do? Yeah. Are you going to be slowed down by this? Or are you going to say, no, we're going to accelerate? He talks about, you know, we hired 1,500 people you know, during this crisis, we have established ties with folks they never would have before. So it is such a matter of leadership, your perspective, how yeah. do you view your role in the world and what's possible? And as you've talked, uh, you know, many times, Tony, about leadership, and people are looking for leadership, they're not always necessarily looking to be told what to do. Yep. But they want to have the leadership that inspires each of us to bring the best we can forward. And I think in light of some of the things that you talked about, take the initiative, you know, why not me? Let's go, we can do this, yeah. you know, don't feel like you're trapped. Um, I think some of, some of Bill's thoughts are really good. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, certainly inspiring. It's interesting, speaking of the Grateful Dead, 
I, I was uh, doing a workout the other day and on my playlist, the famous Grateful Dead song, Trucking came up and it had been a long time since I, I've listened to the, the brilliant lyrics by Robert Hunter. But there's a, a line in the song says, you know, sometimes the, the lights all shining on me. Other times I can barely see. Lately, it's occurred to me what a long, strange trip it's been. And I thought that, that may be, I may, I may have to write that down again, because this may be my, uh, my, my, uh, my comments on the era we're living through right now. <laughs> oh, that, that catches it very nicely. Very nicely. Well, Dr. Uphoff, uh, wonderful stuff. Thank you as always. Uh, good to see you. And, uh, you know, it, it will be not too long in the future, I think, when I'm going to twist your arm and get that beer out of you. I, uh, I look forward to it, my friend. Great to see you. Stay, uh, stay safe and, uh, and, uh, and sane. And uh, I look forward to uh, our next conversation, my friend. Thank you, Tony. And thanks to all of you for being with us here again on Cloud Wars Live. We hope you too are staying safe, sane, and healthy out there. And uh, thanks for being with us. We'll see you again soon. So long.